Good evening again, and Merry Christmas one more time. Let's, uh, let's pray before we get into our message tonight. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord. It is our joy, Lord, to gather around you and the wonder of your incarnate Son. Come to our existence, Lord, to save us from sin and show us the way to live. Thank you, Lord. As we gather tonight, Lord, we ask that by your grace and uh, by your Holy Spirit that you have given, Lord, you would instruct us in light and truth and uh, help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of who you are. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Christmas 2015, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we want to extend a warm welcome to you tonight. If you have your Bibles with you, why don't you go ahead and open up to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 is where we're at this evening. Isaiah chapter 9. When we, as we uh, are studying through the scriptures, chapter by chapter, book by book, we actually are in the book of Isaiah and right in these chapters. I think this is a divine appointment, Christmas 2015, to be right where we are at in the scriptures. Isaiah chapter 9 um, really is a flow out of Isaiah chapter 8 in a prophecy. Um, uh, in the 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 scripture that we have tonight, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. You can follow along in your own Bible as I read that. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with just judgment and justice. From this time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Okay, so this text comes out of um, time in the nation of Israel. Uh, Ahaz is a king, he is the grandson of who we met in chapter 1. Um, the king of, of, of the southern portion of the nation of Israel, um, Uzziah, this is his grandson. And um, Isaiah is not a very godly king. Um, you know that at this time, uh, for about 200 years now, Israel had been divided between north and south. That uh, after the time of David's son Solomon, uh, um, after his death, the nation divided And the northern tribes, um, the area occupied by, I should say, the ten tribes in the north, um, retained the name of Israel. And they had split off from uh, the southern area occupied by the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. By no means means was it a clean split. Um, There's not ten lost tribes. There's not two faithful tribes. Those who wanted to get into idolatry went to the north. And uh, the scriptures plainly said that those who wanted to remain faithful to the Lord moved to the south to be around the temple. But uh, at this time, 200 years after that split, Ahaz is king, and uh, they've got some foreign policy problems. Um, the, uh, there's been a, um, a lot of tension between the northern tribes, southern tribes. And on top of that, uh, north of Israel is um, uh, the nation of Syria, has been an aggressor towards the nations also. And so uh, on top of that, northeast of all of that is the, is the ascendant nation, very militaristic, very aggressive, 
the nation of Assyria. And so Assyria had joined in a coalition with Israel, the northern split off, and uh, had formed a coalition to try to be a buffer and uh, put up a front against the rising Assyria. They wanted, those two nations wanted the southern kingdoms, the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin, went by the name of Judah, to join them in this coalition so that they could put up an even larger front against Assyria. And um, Ahaz really wasn't going to do that. And not for godly reasons, though. He did that because he had already sent tribute to Assyria to try to buy a favorable position. And so uh, Israel and Syria then were threatening to come down, invade the southern portion of the uh, the nation of Israel, the split kingdom, um, remove the king and put in their own vassal king. And Isaiah enters into that scene with these prophecies. He says in chapter 8, we won't go over that, we'll be, that, uh, we'll be going through those texts on Wednesday night. Um, uh, Isaiah enters in and says, look, Isaiah, uh, Assyria is going to conquer the nation. And the first ones to fall will be the northern tribes, especially Zebulun, Naphtali, those part portions that were way up in the north. Of course, you're familiar with those texts that say, um, the, the Galilee of the Gentiles that, that dwells in, in darkness and the shadow of death, upon them a light is, um, they've seen a great light. He's promising that though they will be the first ones to fall in the future, there will be a time when they are first to reap the benefits of his blessings, of that great light that is coming. And that there will be a time also when um, all the aggression against the nation of Israel will be removed and far, so far away it will be unremembered. And then you come to this text that says why this is, this is guaranteed. He says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And uh, this is a familiar Christmas passage. Um, you know, you read it and then nativity scenes pop into your head. Um, some of those images just aren't really all that accurate, actually. Um, they're kind of more traditional than they are accurate. We know... Most likely it's not in December. Um, if, when we put together some chronologies about priestly assignments and rotations, that's pretty well documented in the scriptures. We know then when John the Baptist's father was on that priestly rotation and when he had announced to him when John the Baptist would be born, we can anchor that then and, and find out when Mary probably had her announcement brought to her that she would be the mother of the Messiah. And so it's not December. I'm sorry, it's not. And then also, um, um, we're familiar with, with much of what the Bible says, right? Um, this is, this is a, Isaiah 6 and 7, of course, fulfilled in um, Luke chapter 2. It says this, in Luke chapter 2. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was while they were there that the days were completed for her to be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Because there was no room for them in the inn. Um, there's a few things that kind of traditionally we impose upon that that really aren't there. First of all, there's not a lot of urgency on Joseph's part. 
Um, Joseph wouldn't probably have taken his his very pregnant wife if if we imposed that on it. Um, you know, uh, you know, thirty five weeks pregnant to go take an arduous journey south by foot um, to um, to Bethlehem. The text says that um, while they were there, the days were completed. So he's probably there for a while before um, she delivered. So, um, you know, the, the, the idea of, of Joseph running around knocking on doors, trying to find a place to have a baby, probably isn't accurate. And um, also there's no really um, begrudging innkeeper. That's probably not accurate. The word translated in is translated guest room elsewhere in the scriptures. Um, when you came to town, remember this is where Joseph was from, uh, you stayed with family, especially if you were expecting and so uh, the word there translated guest room is probably the first floor where you might have kept some animals also, some very valuable animals. Because there are probably a lot of other people are traveling to be registered for the census, which forced them to travel. So he may have been just in staying on the first floor because there was no room left upstairs with all the other guests. Um, but, you know, this text um, does... In Isaiah chapter 6 and 7, give us a prophecy of a child coming. And it's got a very long view on it. The entrance of Jesus into the world is the ultimate role, uh, goal of this passage. Um, and it gives us some descriptive titles there in chapter 9. That his name, um, they're not names so much as they are descriptions of him and what his nature is like, and then what he would do, and the effects of what he would do. It talks a lot about his government, doesn't it? Chapter uh, 9, verse 6 and 7, it says the government will be upon his shoulder. And then it gives us those titles, those characteristics, wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And then chapter 7 is all about government. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. The government... And a government upon the throne of David, King David. You know, this fulfills promises that were given by the Lord to King David. You go to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, when David wanted to build the temple for the Lord after he'd been established king and been prospered a great deal in the Lord's blessings. He thought of building that temple to honor the Lord, and the Lord told him, no, you can't build that. Your son will build it. But then the Lord made him a, a uh, a promise in chapter 7 of Second Samuel, verses 12 and 13. It says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David has promised that there would be a throne held for his family forever even if they couldn't occupy it because of disobedience or unbelief, still the throne is held for that family line. Jesus is going to take that, and it's going to be a fulfillment of that. It also fulfills promises made to Abraham back in the Old Testament, that there, he would have a descendant who would bless the whole world. Government. A government ordered with justice and judgment. The effect of his government would be such that those who are benefiting from that government would call him wonderful and also counselor. 
mighty God, everlasting Father, or more accurately, call him the Father of Eternities and the Prince of Peace. You know, in our, in our day and age, especially this, this uh, election cycle, some of this seems kind of far-fetched, doesn't it? Um, our government officials ruling, would you call them wonderful? Um, or how about counselor? You know, the, the implication is he's, they have the right answers. I don't think they know what the answers are. I don't think they know what the problems are. And peace? You know, that's, it really is the goal of governments to bring peace. And isn't the world longing for peace? When he comes, he will establish this kind of government, this worldwide kingdom that will bless and prosper the whole world. And the world really does long for that kind of an individual. And unfortunately, they will invest in the wrong person before uh, the right one comes and establishes his kingdom. You know, when we follow the, the, the prophecies, you go to the end of the tribulation, eventually Jesus does enter into the world and establish an unprecedented thousand years of peace and prosperity and righteousness in the world. Revelation tells us that, right? Revelation 12 promised this in a, in a vision given kind of a very long, uh, overarching um, uh, vision of the nation of Israel. It says, uh, talking about the nation of Israel as a woman, it says, She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. You go back to Psalm chapter 2 and find a very similar promise. When the Lord is talking and he says that he would establish his anointed, and talking to that anointed, he says, The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. We see that fulfilled in Revelation 20 when, he, when the, the scriptures just very briefly speak of that thousand-year time that that is going to literally be fulfilled. Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. It said, Blessed is holy who, is not, who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. The scripture out of Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, does have that long view obviously in, in hand, and that will be completely fulfilled at those times. But there's a personal application view, I think, that's very necessary for us now as we wait for those things and watch those things being set up in the world. Still, there's a very real por- portion of this for us, 2015. Uh, the kingdom and his government. You know, it says, unto us a child is born. Really, that Isaiah is speaking to the Jewish nation. Unto us, a child is born. But Jesus himself, right, expands on that himself, being the child that was born. Expands that us to anyone when he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He opens that up to anybody. So Christmas offer from God is to enter into that government. Enter into that government that he is going to bring. You can enter it now. We can all enter that now. 
You know, Jesus said as he began his ministry, he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or put a little more colloquial, has drawn near. And then he emphasizes how that's done. He says, follow me. So, governed by God. Governed, you know, we're all governed by something, right? Some set of ideas or standards by which we navigate life, you operate by. Where did you get those? Where do we get those? Well, parents, uh, school, societal standards, you know. We learn what works, what doesn't work. You know, as we're kids, we're kind of idealistic. We set those really high, you know. A little bit older, we've got to be a little more honest about it and say we have settled <laughs> for something. You know, those, those standards could be higher. We recognize that. They should be higher. I think that was born out of a sense that there is something that's absolutely right, that's much better. We catch glimpses of it, I think, sometimes. We see some selfless act makes the news. We, we catch just a little glimpse of that. We've backed off from that personally. I think most people will have to admit that. We can't, really, because we don't want to. Our self-centeredness comes up against those standards, and we realize we don't want to give that much. Everyone wants to be, I think, running their life from higher principles, governed by something great and glorious, significant, something better than ourselves, something pure, perfect, something that inspires us and energizes us towards great things. It's the kind of government God is offering, offering in Jesus. You know, this is the kind of thing that he offers us, things that would be wonderful. His effect of the government on your life can be wonderful. You know he is wonderful, marvelous, extraordinary. In every way, when you open those scriptures and read about him, you see him as wonderful. Where is he not wonderful? Where? Where he confronts religious hypocrisy wonderfully. He touches the needy, heals, restores. He truly is wonderful. And I think this term really is the sweeping term for all that he does. He's also counselor. And since, since all that he does is wonderful, he is the wonderful counselor. Look, we all need answers, right? We all, no one comes into life knowing how to do things, how to live. We all need answers. We all need direction. Where do you get your direction from? He offers the right answers. He understands your life completely. You want that in a counselor. You want somebody who understands everything perfectly. We don't see our own lives perfectly. We have such limited viewpoints, yet... All the complexities, all the convolutions of your life, where you have been, what you have seen, what you have heard, what you've lived through, your victories, your achievements, your failures, your secrets, where you've been wounded, brokenhearted, what you have earned, what you did not deserve, what is fair and not fair in your life. He knows it all. He knows it all. He is a wonderful counselor. You know, one other title given to him is the Ancient of Days. In, your, in, in our lives, I think we, we just kind of, you know, we have to, without the Lord, kind of find a reason to, to, to make our way through this life on a daily basis. You experience it as you go. You've got to adjust and adapt. 
He's called the Ancient of Days. He's outside of time. He knows where you are going. He knows what is coming. And he offers direction that is wonderful on every level. In your relationships, your personal development, the future for you, the impact of your life, both on your family and and others coming up behind you. Being the Ancient of Days, he's seen it all. Nothing is a surprise to him. You know, the counsel that he brings, that he offers you, under that government, that administration of your life, that counsel he brings is necessary. You need to hear what he has to say. It's faithful. He has your best and highest in mind. And it's rich, the counsel he brings, because it's born out of his love for you. He offers you wonderful counselor. Be that wonderful counselor if you want to bring yourself under the administration of his government. But there's more to it. He offers, offers this government run by mighty God, the God of all creation and glory, the, the Lord who reigns in heaven, the one worthy of all our worship and praise. He's, really, he's willing to let you be a part of what he's doing. You know, I think it's kind of spoken of a little bit in chapter six, verse 6, where it says a child is born. That speaks of his humanity. You know, Jesus didn't have to come as a child. God created Adam most likely as a fully developed adult. Jesus could have come that way. But he chose instead to become a human in the most vulnerable of fashions. You know, when, when the powerful people achieve power and, and authority and, and uh, at those highest levels, they become unreachable. They become inaccessible. You know, Jesus enters in as a human being so that no one would feel distant from him. But the son who is given speaks, I think, of, his, of exactly this, the mighty God. Is there any clearer statement of Jesus' divinity? I don't think so. But he also says that this, this administration of our lives that he offers can be um, done from the everlasting Father or the Father of eternity. That's what he brings to, or we can bring to your life. Look, people, I think, are, you know, it's a very powerful motivation for people to find lasting impact coming from their lives. People strive for it. You know, to know something is coming from the effects of all I'm doing and working and striving for that's going to go beyond my life and my lifetime. Um, I think people are looking and have a hint of, of that in, in the, the sense that there's an eternity that's supposed to come from their life that's missing. You know, something that comes out of our life that goes beyond our little dot of life. It's a significant drive for a lot of people make a name for themselves to be remembered, a lasting impact, a legacy. You know, I'm, I'm reading a book on the short history of the world, and I don't agree with its origins because it talks about, you know, rising from primordial goo and evolution. I reject that completely. But you get to the parts of recorded human history, and, and if you want to talk about a, a humbling viewpoint, there, you know, there are very few names in history that are remembered the multitude, millions, if not billions of people have moved through this world completely anonymously. We have no idea that they existed. 
people, empires, armies, wealth, power, completely forgotten. Does it bother you? That you will be completely forgotten in just a couple of generations. Yet the Lord offers you this. Because he is the father of eternity, he can bring and administer things in your life that have an eternal impact for lasting good. He offers that through the move of his Holy Spirit through your life. John chapter 7. Jesus made this invitation at a feast in Jerusalem. Last day, on the great day of the feast, he stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. Acts chapter 1, he begins to fulfill this through those he's sending out in the world. He said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Talk about impact. Wow. You know, it's not the kind of impact, though, that the world is going to celebrate, is it? It's the impact for God. The people's eternal destinies can be changed by your life. People hungering for a lasting impact can find it under the administration of the Father of Eternity. But also, he brings an administration as the Prince of Peace. You know, governments strive to secure peace externally for their citizens. You know, what can they do for an individual, you know, who's looking for peace? Almost nothing. So much so, you know, in our day, it's peace through superior firepower. It's still, it's still, there's no guarantees. There's, are there? We've seen that too often today in the news. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's bringing a government eventually that will be worldwide, and it will be peace. But peace now he offers for each one. Peace between God and man. Peace between you and God. You know, we, we, we've lived our lives at odds with God. He's our creator. He's also our judge. We have to be, we will be accountable to him. There's sin in your life. You are a sinner. Sin has created a separation between you and God. God will judge all sin. He's patient now about your sin because he's provided a way for your sin to be judged without you suffering for it. The penalty for sin is death. Scripture is clear. The wages of sin is death. And all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You might be a good person. You might be an upstanding member of the community in business and in your family. But still scripture confines all. All people under the same condition needing forgiveness. Don't be fooled into thinking because I'm good and others think I'm good. Therefore, God does too. God loves you. He has a solution for your sin problem. He is the Prince of Peace. He has made peace through uh, the gift of his Son in Ephesians chapter 2. It 
says, you, he, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins, and what you want, once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. When you were dead in trespasses, he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He offers to end that conflict between you and God. The scriptures present it this way. God created man face to face. But man turned his back on God. As a result, God turned his back on man. But in this son who is given, this prince of peace, he has uh, redeemed that relationship and atoned for man's sin. And as God has turned to face man, now he waits for each one to turn towards him. Jesus offers the end to that conflict. John 3.16, you already read it. Whosoever believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. You can know peace with God through faith in him, and then know that peace of God. Look, don't misunderstand that, though. Don't misunderstand that offer of peace. It's not a guarantee of smooth sailing through life. We live in a fallen world. Jesus himself said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world give do I give do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it, let it be afraid. These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. You know, peace, when you think about it, has a sense of adequate resources for what I am facing. That's where our anxieties come from. I don't know how to solve this. What can I bring to this? I don't know what to do. This is Jesus, the mighty God, to whom all power and authority has been given, who loves you, the Father of eternity, who has given his life for you because of his love for you. Does he bring adequate resources? Can he bring adequate resources to your life in every aspect so that you can have peace? The answer is yes. He offers it on a condition. Jesus said as he began his ministry, repent and believe. All these things are waiting for you from God. But you have to respond to his offer. You have to respond to the truth he's telling you. That is his condition. You have sinned. You are a sinner. You need to confess these things are true and that you need to be saved. Jesus wants to be wonderful to you. It's it's his joy to be wonderful to you, to bring you the answers you need, to be mighty God in your life, the father of eternal things, that prince of peace. But first he has to be your savior. Christmas is a great time for you to receive that salvation that God is offering. It's on the table, ready for you to receive if you want it. Let's finish here tonight. Why don't we stand and we will pray. Thank you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your gift that you have brought to us. We thank you for all that you have given. Help us to go forward in all the things that you have prepared for us, that you might be glorified in our lives. We love you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name.